The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tridentroompodcast. Welcome to the Trident Room, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. In today's podcast, NPS student Mike Morris sits down and has a drink with East Asian policy advisor, Dr. Michael A. Gloss. Is the Belt and Road Initiative realistic, you think? Can they afford it? <sighs> I mean, the... Because I have only one story from one country, so it doesn't... And I'm not going to name it, but, uh, but like, uh, suffice to say... The citizens of that country that I talk to and around and sitting down with drinks are like you is they don't like China because China has offered and they accepted these promises of billions in infrastructure investment right, right, right. and none of it's materialized. But China is asking for the benefits back already without having without having actually invested anything. Now, that's only one country. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if that's expensive expansive or not you know i haven't done a study and i'm not a china focused guy so i probably won't at least not anytime soon well i mean so there's a couple of of levels at which to answer that question right um i think you said will it work from the chinese perspective or is it realistic okay from the chinese perspective it will be declared a glowing victory it's xi jinping's baby whatever happens it will be characterized it will be characterized as a great victory uh, for China, for the Chinese people, for China being a responsible power, um, no matter what happens. Now, in terms of what it will look like on the ground, um, you know, countries are in a difficult situation, right? They don't like China. They don't trust China. But the argument from the United States of don't take this money because in 20 years, you might not be able to pay it back. And if you can't pay it back, then you're going to have to give China something else. So don't take this money today <laughs> is not a very compelling argument. And, Message. And, and I, think, I think we have seen the Belt and Road Initiative spurring some other countries that are allies and partners to try to recognize, hey, you know, there actually is really a need here for these countries uh, to, 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 to develop infrastructure as a way to help them grow. So we've seen Japan start to get into this game a little bit more. The United States is, is launching new initiatives to do so. But I think we need to frame them as... Is it too little too late? Or do you think there are ways that we can frame it there, to get ahead on this? There are. There definitely are. Um you know, the, 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 the problem is it's only countries that are relatively more wealthy that can take the Japanese-funded project because it's likely going to be of a higher quality, but it's also going to be more expensive. Right? Oftentimes, countries say yes to the Chinese project because it's the only game in town that they can afford. Right? Uh-huh. That, what, that when the U.S. and Japan and Korea start to talk about, hey, we can do this for you too, the quality goes much higher, but the price goes much higher too. So is the idea in the Belt and Road Initiative then is that, hey, we're going to give you this money and you're going to develop this infrastructure. You're going to pay this money back in through trade favoritism or what have you or whatever method it might come. But you're going to see way more benefit out of this investment and this 
essentially loan that you're going to get. Is that kind of the idea? And, and, it, and, and it's, it's not China being magnanimous and charitable, right? They're trying to gain from this as well. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the emphasis on Belt and Road is connectivity, right? right? So the idea is, uh, from China's own experience, they recognize that uh, not having infrastructure was a key uh, obstacle to their own economic growth. And as they built infrastructure, that was a really important part of fueling their own economic growth. And it looks around its region, looks around the neighborhood and sees lots of poorer countries uh, that are neighboring poorer provinces of China, and they say, hey, if we can build up their infrastructure, that will fuel their economy, and if we can build up the connections and the connectivity between our neighbors and then our poorer provinces in the West and the South, that will help China economically uh, and will deal with the, the internal issues of inequality that the, that the leadership faces. And then there's a whole lot of excess capacity that China has built up. So they're saying, hey, this worked for us. This can work for you too. Here's some money to do it. Now be our friend and forget the United States. I'm not, you know, that, that's, that's a stretch. But, I mean, in a, in a way, some people could interpret it pessimistically that that's an initiative to try and replace and become that global power. No, that's absolutely right. And, that's, and, yeah, and the uni- yeah. you know. No, that's right. I mean, so so one of the concerns is is China trying to uh, build a world order that is centered on China and a return to something that is the sinocentrism that we used to talk about uh, in the tribute system. And when you do have the Belt and Road Initiative that has a whole lot of these roads and corridors that do connect back to China, it it, 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 it does make sense to at least worry that what China is trying to do is create a world order where it's in the center. Do you think the Chinese the Chinese must take a much longer, you know, historical approach to this when they when they look at the world? Um, than I mean, we look maybe at the last twenty years, some of us the last century, some of us maybe just the modern world. You know, like seventeen eighty nine on, and that's 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 our world history as we know it. They, what how how is how is their past uh, influencing and informing? Where oh. they see envision their future? Okay, I, I I'm I'm having bitter beer face because that's a nonsensical thing that I hear all of the time. Right? Yeah. This idea that the United States can only think of the, in, in terms of the next news cycle, whereas China is looking decades and centuries in, in, into the future. I'm thinking yeah. decades and centuries into their past and, and saying, hey, this is where we belong in the world. Um, you know, we've been left behind and now we've fought our way up and we're here now. No, that's, ab- that's absolutely right. Um, that... If you look at it, the emphasis over the last hundred years uh, from China is this concept of rejuvenation. Uh, And it's gotten a lot more emphasis under Xi Jinping, um, but really it goes back to Sun Yat-sen and kind of the end of the Qing dynasty from that period on and after the century of humiliation, the idea of rejuvenation, return, return to some sort of previous glory is absolutely driving uh, China and has has continued to and will continue to. Now, what that actually means is still a little unclear. Do you think that their culture and language and mindset being more from the, you know, traditionally Eastern world helps them, you know, coalesce their society around that idea? Because I think I think about that with the United States and, and, you know, and yeah, and the Western thought and mindset, and let's look at the COVID response. What it's told me is that 
uh, we humans are still very, very selfish creatures, like, really. But then we look at, I mean, China's response, and, you know, we can talk about whether or not we trust the information that comes out of China, sure, but um, little piece by piece, they stamp out any little, like, flare-up of coronavirus that comes up, and people capitulate to the man, if you will, and, and the order is followed, and there might be complaints, yeah, yeah, but yeah. order is followed, and and uh, and well, look who doesn't have coronavirus anymore. I I, us- I usually push back on any of these sorts of cultural essentialism, orientalism yeah. type arguments, but I w- I will say I think the the thread of that that is at least worth thinking about a little bit more is uh, kind of a bumper sticker of. Western liberal countries care about the individual, the individual need, the individual benefit, and Eastern countries are more likely to focus on the collective good and the collective interest and not, back to your, your sort of selfish point, um, I think you can go a, go way too far on, on that of uh, talking about differences in cultures, but I think there's something to that. Now, to your COVID point, I'm not sure that that is... Uh, a result of the importance of the collective good, I think it's also living in an authoritarian state makes it much easier to to, to, <laughs> to close to close things down. Do. Exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> and that's just yeah. I mean, uh, give me liberty or give me death. Literally, in this case, I suppose. Yeah, there weren't there weren't many protests of people saying uh, it is it is against the constitution to force me to wear a mask in China. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> There's no room for that. <laughs> I can see. I can see where you know we could go too far on that line but i i i still believe that do you th- do you think the evidence isn't there that there is cultural differences that drive some of our decision making there and i see it in the language learning aspect like i was really interested in learning russian when i did because i see you know russian history and the russian language kind of bridges this gap between kind of like in sort of an eastern and a western mindset now granted some of these ideas that we're talking about that might be dangerous i would you could say that westerners have certainly taken nationalism way too far and farther than any others, right, in a dangerous manner. Um, <laughs> so, like, I'm not saying that it's dangerous. I'm just saying I, I think it. I think maybe their perspective is informed differently and how they view the world may, like, it's, it's harder for us to relate. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that there's absolutely the possibility of having culture as an important factor and driver for differences in, 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 in reactions, differences in, in policy. Uh, I think far too often uh, we see China or another country acting differently than the West and just say, oh, it's got to be so culture. Go, oh, it's, it's their culture. You know, we can't understand it. So... We'll just contain them. <laughs> no, so yeah, it, it maybe um, it's the threat of the other in that case. Well, and the, right, and then once you other once you otherize them, you then uh, see them in more nefarious ways. Uh, you interpret their behavior uh, as uh, being more challenging and more revisionist than maybe it's, it is. It's so easy it's, to demonize the unknown, you know, isn't it? Yeah. History will tell us that. <laughs> yes, yes. It Ho- is. Hopefully, the future won't. But yeah, yeah. hopefully, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Where is is the future headed that direction? I mean, no. we're all gonna die. <laughs> <laughs> that's why we're having beers. That's now. right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> one of the one of the issues that I have been researching and continue to research is this question of China's international influence. 
there is, you know, it's this return to this idea of China is now everywhere. Uh, and I think that's right that, you know, China is throwing a bunch of money around the world. Uh, China's diplomats, China's military is going out more and more. Uh, and I think in both the policy world and far too much the academic world, there is a tendency to equate China's actions, China's activities as being successful in showing that it is broadening its influence over these countries, right? So the idea that China is investing a bunch of money in a country or in a region is often uh, evidence for its increasing influence. Why does the United States perceive that as threatening? Is it threatening? If it's not, what activities that China is taking do we see threatening for good reason? I know that was a lot of questions at once, and I'm not. Oh, oh yeah, yes, 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 no, and maybe. Uh, I, I think at the most fundamental level, the idea of another actor who's not an ally, not a partner, coming in and having a much broader, stronger presence around the world is by many people seen as, at the very least, something really difficult to adjust to. And probably more fundamentally, just their presence is seen as a challenge and seen as a problem that needs to be responded to. Um, so in that case, uh, so that, that final question I, I kind of threw in there is what actions or activities are they undertaking then that the United States rightfully perceives as a threat to our national security? So absolutely the things that they're doing in the South China Sea and the East China Sea of both challenging U.S. freedom of navigation, uh, but also stealing resources inside other countries' EEZs uh, with vague claims. Uh, or building brand new islands. Or building brand, yes, right, right, <laughs> yes. Those, so, I mean, I think the... The island reclamation is a little bit more complex in terms of, is that a direct challenge to U.S. interests, right? Uh, just because we don't like something doesn't necessarily mean it's a challenge to U.S. interests, right? Similar to the idea of the Chinese investing all around the world. We don't like it, but wait, we actually do like countries not being poor. So if their investment and <laughs> in aid makes these countries more wealthy... Is that a good That's thing? Good for or everybody, a, is that a good thing or, or a bad thing? And if it's the Chinese that but do, we it, didn't do exactly, it, exactly, right, exactly. So yeah, yeah. that challenges us. Yeah, okay, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think I think um, you know returning kind of some of those some of those mm -hmm. big issues is uh, adjusting to a reality where China is more active in areas where the where we used to be completely uncontested uh, is, a, is an adjustment, is a challenge, but that's different from necessarily saying it challenges U.S. interests. Well, in contesting some of our military dominance, if you will, yeah, do, yeah, you, yeah. do you find that as, as more of a balancing act? You know, like to, not, to, not to call international relations into it, but do you see that as more of a balancing effort uh, or as a more a challenge to the U.S. dominance directly? I mean, so... Th how do you think they see it? I was, I was just going to say, you, if, you, if you think of this from China's perspective, uh, which you can or cannot, or you can call BS on it if you want, but, but you know, China has had its recent experience been 
U.S. allies surrounding it, U.S. military activities on its border, uh, an inability to control uh, the waterways off its own coast, and as China becomes much more uh, economically interdependent with the world and cares a lot more about slocks and and um, and uh, maritime trade, having safe passage uh, becomes that much more of an issue. Uh, so there's the economic element of that that says, I don't really feel comfortable with the idea that the U.S. could maybe impose some cost in a blockade really easily. We'd like to have, make sure that we can insure our own stocks. Uh, and then there's, there's the security and the prestige aspect of that, right? China is now the second most powerful country in the world. It shouldn't have another country that is right on its border controlling its water. Yeah, right. shouldn't I mean, shouldn't we be the ones ensuring freedom of navigation here? You know, this is these are our waters. It's right off like we're, it's our ocean. Right, you know? right, 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 right. Like, and, and yeah, the Chinese say this all the time that uh, how would the United States feel if uh, Chinese naval vessels were operating right off of San Diego, uh, right off of Hawaii, uh, and in the idea of of of, of freedom of navigation allowing uh, military vessels between 12 nautical miles and 200 nautical miles, where, where, which we consider that to be international waters, uh, the, the, the Chinese say, well, if we were operating in there, how would you feel? Wouldn't you feel threatened? And the U.S. side often says, no, bring it on. The, the, Soviets, the, Soviets, the Soviets did that. It would be completely normal. Um, however, when it does happen, sometimes we are a little we'll scramble or a little, we'll a little concerned. We'll you and yeah. we're going to keep an eye on you. And I'm sure they keep an eye on us. Oh, right, right, I right, mean, right, right. I imagine that we're tailed by multiple ships every time we go yes, through their yes. uh, near their waters. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, absolutely. Yes. I mean, I would expect that we would do the same when they come over here. Is it? Well, that is an interesting question to me. Uh, maybe not to everybody else, but do they? Do they lack the capability to to come over here and like hang out in our like near our waters all the time? No, they they hang out in our waters more than most people think um more especially especially off okay. of especially off of hawaii um but they also don't necessarily want to directly challenge the united states right this is a distinction that the chinese make repeatedly of China is not trying to challenge the United States directly that many of the disputes that we have had in the last 10 years have been uh, China aggressively challenging neighbors where the, where the, the U.S. States. has a, an interest, interest, but the U.S. is not a claimant in the South China Sea. The U.S. is not a claimant in the East China Sea. The Chinese say, uh, we're not challenging the United States directly. We're challenge we're responding they're, to defend our sovereignty they're handling our their own bilateral affairs with these other neighbors and countries right and the only reason and... that the united states is affected by this mm -hmm. is because the u.s is intruding into issues that don't directly affect it so the argument is that the actions speak for themselves is that hey we're not trying to antagonize the united states but they kind of feel maybe like they're being antagonized yeah perhaps, I, right, you know, right right because yeah. we're there constantly all the time so much yeah, okay. I mean, perspectives. And and back to back to this idea of kind of how do the Chinese view this? Um, I can remember when I was at NDU, we had a, a dialogue uh, every year with the, with PLA NDU, which kind of on strategic issues. Uh, and I was talking about kind of regional developments, and this was uh, 
yeah, it was right, it was right, at, right after I got an MPS. So it was uh, a- April of 2010, and I was going through uh, the list of all of the things that the Chinese had done over the previous year that seemed to suggest they were becoming a little bit more antagonistic, that they were becoming, the, the, the word at the time was assertive. Um, and uh, the, who was he at the time? It was, it was, a, it was a lieutenant, lieutenant commander uh, on the Chinese side uh, gave his own version of that. And it was similarly a list of actions that the United States had taken that were showing that we were more antagonistic towards China, that we were now getting more involved in these territorial disputes, that we were the ones who were causing the problem, that we were, uh, with Hillary Clinton talking about the return to Asia of the United States policy, that we were now getting deeply interfering in Chinese affairs and in regional disputes in a way that it was the U.S. who was becoming antagonistic and the U.S. was the one who was was causing the problems and becoming more assertive. so today, in the world where we're headed, or where we are now, if you were a policy advisor in the White House, what are some policy positions you would recommend that we maintain or adopt? Or change? Or change, sure. Uh, so I think what's, What's been fascinating in the U.S. approach to China is there's the trade war vector of the U.S. approach to China that the White House cares a lot about, that Peter Navarro cares about, and there's challenging China there. And then there's the broader consensus of needing to push back on China uh, in, in security affairs that is really much more consensus, whole of government. Uh, if Hillary Clinton had become president, uh, the advisors that, that she would put in place would have a similar trajectory on that side of needing to push back mm-hmm. and, and get tougher on China. Uh, and I think there's, there's good reason and there's good logic to that. Um, in my mind, the trade war is completely ill-conceived, uh, costs the United States uh, in many different ways. I think trying to push back on China's unfair trade practices is worth it, but we went about it completely wrong, and we should have worked together with our allies to work collectively to then put pressure on China. And that would hurt, would have hurt China much more and would have improved our relations with everyone else uh, that I think increasingly we are in a position where a lot of the things that the United States sees as problematic from China, other countries do too. So we should work together to collectively, as best as possible, put pressure on China, recognizing that sometimes that means we need to pull some punches a little bit, that some countries might be less comfortable standing up to China in that same sort of way. But working together gives us a lot more leverage. Sure. I was going to, that was the kind of the following I was going to ask. Are there areas that you can see that we could de-escalate that wouldn't be detrimental to U.S. national security then, where you could pull those punches a little bit more. Uh, the trade war sounds like one of those areas through collective. Yeah, I think, that, yeah, I think, yeah I think that's one where, other, where European allies for sure would have been very happy to join with us and work with us to, 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 put, to put pressure on, on China. Um, I, I think what we need to avoid, especially in Asia, is forcing countries to feel like we're making them make a choice. Right? I mean, this is, said, this is said all the time, but still needs to be fully understood that even when it seems like countries in Asia are 
like-minded with us, share common interests, also see China's activities as a challenge. Uh, they also recognize that their economic relationship, especially with China, is supremely important and perhaps more valuable than its economic relationship Just with the United China's States. because China is challenging doesn't make China their enemy, right? The other thing to remember is the U.S. is not the most reliable partner, right? That we have with domestic political change with exactly about. with domestic political changes with different uh involvements in other areas of the world right sometimes asia is really important and other times it's not and if you're an asian country and you say do i really want to go all in with the united states i'm not so sure well do we have to acknowledge the reality that um you know the united states can't rule the whole world all the time i mean you know, we, we've felt the resources America. being stretched. Yeah, America, right? We can do it all. But can we? I mean... <laughs> so in Asia, anyway, we have moved in the last five to ten years uh, away from what used to be called the hub-and-spokes approach in Asia, right? So in, in, in Europe, the approach is multilateral with NATO. Uh, in Asia, it was the U.S. is the hub, and we have five allies, and then we have relations with each of those allies, but most things go through us. Uh, we have, in, in part, post-financial crisis, because of those resource problems uh, and because of our focus on, on, on other areas, we have become much more encouraging of other countries working together with security cooperation. Sure. Just but China's kind of mimicking that the former, aren't they? Where they're kind of trying to be the hub and have relations out and around and kind of be the center on that, right? Kind of in Asia, or would you not say that? I wouldn't. I mean, I'm not an yeah, Asian expert. Yeah, no, so. I mean, not, or certainly not, in, not, not in the formalized way that the United States did. Oh, right? okay. I think there's a concern that that's what China is trying to do on the security implications of the Belt and Road, right? If you think of the connectivity, you know, and it, and it, and it depends on your view, right? So is that connectivity, everybody is connected to China? Or everybody is connected to China and connected to everybody, to everybody else. Everybody else, right? That's what makes you know, geopolitical conversations so interesting. It's like, well, depends on your view, because like, like, you know, so many of the other guests we might have on, you know, it's like, well, when you two plus two is plug four. in the machine, <laughs> right, right. it works or it doesn't, <laughs> and the circuits are connected or they're not. You know, yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. the answer comes out the box, the magical box at the end, and the product works or it doesn't yeah no and and this and this is what is either fascinating or frustrating about the social world and international politics is you know i have students who always say uh do you have the textbook on that with the answers and the manual <laughs> with the answers i'm like there aren't any clear answers for right. a lot of this stuff and it's not so you're a constructivist got it cool okay <laughs> I mean, I will say on, on other professions, one of the things that has uh, really changed in the last 10 years is China affects virtually everyone now. And <laughs> uh, maybe as a result, uh, everyone has some sort of opinion about China, uh, right? So the guy who cuts my hair, uh, when he found out that I was a China guy and went to China, he goes, are you allowed to walk down the street free, or if you walk out of your apartment, do you get arrested? Oh wow! Yeah, and and you know the the cable repairman comes and says some nutty, crazy things about what the suppression is like in China, and 
Does it make you think, like, where are people getting their education exactly. and news? Exactly, like, yes. You, like, you've not even heard that crisis no. before. No, no, no. Right? And it's not and it's not like a CNN, MSNBC versus Fox News, OAN thing, right? right? it's like, where it's like, is it's, it right, coming right, right, from? Right, 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 yeah. yeah. How do you think people build up these ideas in their head? I, For some <laughs> of them, I have absolutely no idea. Uh, but the frustrating thing as a, as a China scholar is... There's just so much information out about China now, right? Trying to follow it, trying to keep up with it just as a profession. It's so difficult. And now because China is more important, there's a lot more people who don't know anything at all about China writing about China. And invariably, the more popular books about China are the worst books about China. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, as it happens in pop culture, many right? Times. Uh, you, yeah, that, you, that's not that's not a China specific thing. That's you always get truth. told. Yeah, I was at the beginning of my uh, graduate experience. I was always told, you know, the reason we focus on you know peer reviewed articles and or publications maybe out of universities is anybody can publish a book and say anything they want. Yeah. yeah. So just because it's in a book doesn't mean it's any good. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Um, I, I think I know what I'm going to ask. You're sitting here in a Monterey Jazz Festival T-shirt. <laughs> If you were in a jazz quartet, what instrument would you play? Oh, see, I, I am musically, in terms of playing music, an uh-huh. idiot. An idiot. I can barely play the piano. I've tried to take up various things over the years. It just doesn't work for me. Uh, in a perfect world, then, where, a, where do you see yourself oh, sa- doing? Sax, for sure. Yeah, like Kenny G or President Clinton style or... I'm giving you an evil look. You are. Uh, <laughs> sorry. So either, either I'm sorry. E- yeah, that's fine. So, so, so for me, if I were if I were in a jazz band and able to play instruments, mm-hmm. it would definitely either be sax or bass, because bass is just the foundation Dude, of so bass. much good jazz. Yeah. Yeah. And my wife loves the bass as well. So. Christian McBride, certainly one of our one of our favorites. I uh, saw him in Boston like 20 years ago for the first time. <laughs> he's at he's at the jazz festival all, pretty much every year. So you you can't play instruments. Nope. Um, you're I'm, not I'm, a paper boy anymore. <laughs> you can't play ball. Apparently, not not well enough to be a professional. What else would you? Are you, do? Are you just trying to criticize me of all the things I can't you're do? You're the one who said <laughs> it. My goodness. Um, what would you do right now if you weren't teaching? If I weren't teaching, I would probably be working in a DC think tank. Okay. Doing what? Thinking? Si- the, uh, I mean, so doing a lot of the same sort of research. Okay. On 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 China issues, on international relations issues, but not the but without but without the teaching part. So uh, this is this is this really kind of is yeah a passionate background for you. There's yeah. there's there's a lot of passion here. And this is what we're focused on. Like, what I, what inspired you? Was it that professor in undergrad that really drove that you? Started to me in that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. so I, I always had a voracious appetite for learning, um, and I think that lit the spark to put push me in the direction yeah. of being fascinated by that. So you don't really you, you don't really see yourself kind of in any other vision or, or like region or role or. It's, it's like this is where I went this because is, this is this is what it is, yep. and this is like this. I don't want to say defines you. That's 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 
overly broad, but it's part of who you are. Right, right, right. So, it's, I mean, the other the other answer to your question is I can't imagine what I would be doing if I was doing something different than than this. So you're in. You're where I'm. Where I want to be. We want to be. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. very, very lucky, very that's, fortunate that yeah, it worked out incredible. that way. Yeah, I would say I am, but normally I'm just like stuck in my house right now, alone, sitting there going, what the hell is this COVID thing? Yeah, right. Yeah. In, in, in general, I, I am where I want to be. <laughs> the COVID part of <laughs> things know, yeah. is a little different. No, but, but being here in Monterey is great, and being an MPS student is like fantastic and wonderful. What would you tell, what's your advice to us students? What would you, like, I mean, what do you see, what are our pitfalls and where are our successes? Like, what, what are our best behaviors? What? Where do we go wrong? You personally? Sure. <laughs> um, one of the things that I really love about teaching NPS master students, and there's a long list, uh, is how much I respect the choices that you have made and the paths that you've taken on your careers, right? Uh, it's very different from when I was a TA and I had, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-old uh, snotty kids who just cared about going and getting into law school. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, this is a situation where uh, I highly respect and value you. You are all mostly respon <laughs> res responsible, responsible adults, responsible students. We do our best uh, in these times. <laughs> but I am still shocked at the amount of, uh, for lack of a better word, grade grubbing that goes on sometimes of people who get an A- minus or a B plus and will bang on my door and try to talk to me repeatedly in the hopes that if they, they can just wear me down like and I'll change like it. Like a third grade bump or something? Exactly, right. Yeah, to change it from... I, Why? I, 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 I don't know, but you are all type A. You are all overachievers, <laughs> well, that's true. right? I mean... That is, yeah, we are type A to a T, aren't we? Yeah, yeah I, and, and, and for a lot of students... Uh, I'm I am i am a really tough A. I don't give a lot of you know C's and D's, but I'm a tough A. And I'll get lots of students who will come and spend lots of time complaining about the A minus that they got in my class. I had this discussion when when grades came out. I was like, he is a tough A, but I was like, he's super fair, and that was my opinion and shared. I was like, it's a really really fair grade. I mean, it's like, yeah. I mean, even kind of generous. I mean, when you really match it up to the standard and what's expected. I mean, it's, yeah, you know. and it and it's and it's it's up to you. I mean, to me, you know, it's easy to say I'm the professor, <laughs> but uh, you know, far more important than that silly letter that you get is how much did you learn from the class? Yeah, and certainly not. And how many and, skills? And how many airplanes flew, flew by? Yeah, how many how many jets are going to go that's over right. in the middle of our interview today? But that's okay. We we warn people that we would have to deal with that. Yeah, yeah. Especially for the NSA students, I think that the best advice I have, and we talked about this in class as well, is to try to learn how to read effectively and efficiently, right? I mean, yes, we, especially me, uh, assign more reading than one could possibly do, uh, but the expectation is not that you read every word, that you know the footnotes, that you know what's in the middle. The idea is that you read for the main arguments for what is covered. And then if it's interesting to you, you read more. Uh, but too many people still pick up an article, start at the beginning, read it as far as they can, and then they run out of time. And 
only touch half of the articles that they're supposed to read. Well, you gave me a bit on China, you know, to read last night, and in the time I had, I was like, well, intros and conclusions. Here exactly. We go. Right, right, right. Let's right, see. Right. Let's see where those line up and mismatch, and what adds on, and we'll see if if I can't ask some smartish questions. Right, and 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 that's you know the it's the time management issue that is the biggest challenge, right? I sort of you know talked about. Uh, Loving having having you guys as students as adults, not 18, 19, 20-year-olds, but time management is a different issue for you since many of you are married, have kids, that the post-class time evening period is not completely open like I don't know how those undergrad. people do it. I don't know how those people do yeah. it. You're married. Yep, yeah, but married, married but no kids. What's your wife's name? Jenny. Jenny. How do you two get on? Where'd you guys meet? <laughs> uh, we met back to your question of do I consider myself a nerd uh, <laughs> we met at a uh, summer class at Northwestern the summer after our freshman year of high school wow yes nice yes so you guys go right. all the way back yes yes we, had, we haven't been dating since then we start we uh, dated for a couple of years in college uh and then, as, you were, as, as, as we've talked about distance and relations in the past, I was at Cornell, she was at Northwestern. It was great for two years, kind of ran its course. Uh, had a couple of years where, where we weren't together, then got back together again in, in 2001, and been together happily, lovely, lovely ever since. Ever since. Yeah. Dogs or cats or anything? We're, we're, we're going to move in the direction of getting a dog since, you know, I'm so close to the beach. Walking the dog on the beach is yeah. going to be, be pretty sweet. <laughs> that's a new that's a that's a new favorite activity for anybody that has a dog. Yeah. Do you yeah. have a favorite dog breed? <sighs> Looking in the direction of a lab, I think should just be energetic and fun, a lot of fun. energetic. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Plenty. Yeah, per, like the per, per, perfect. If you like per, walking, perfect, perfect coastal California beach dog. If you like yeah. walking on the beach, a lab is for you. you yeah. Um, so when you look back, then NPS students are a different story. When you look back at your 23, 22-year-old self just after undergrad, what would you tell that guy? What's Mike Glosney doing right then that he should have maybe done differently? If, 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 I, if I had to go back and do it all over again, I think I would have preferred to take some time off between undergraduate and graduate school. What would you have done in China for those couple of years? Uh, probably would have taught English like everyone else does when you first go over there, teach English and then do language classes on the side and just kind of have a, have enough to get by and have fun, learn the language, see how much you like the country, uh, mature a little bit. I think I was pretty immature once I started uh, the PhD program. What would you not, tell people not that who I'm, want not to that visit? I'm, not that I'm mature now. But. What would you tell people who want to visit China today? Because I can imagine there's people out there who think, "Oh my gosh, we're so adversarial. Is it safe for me to go over there? What are they going to think of me as an American, especially in the military? Like, what, what, like, what do you tell? Yeah, them? Sa- safety isn't the worry. Um, it's a much less pleasant place to visit than it was 10, 20 years ago. Is it? Yeah, in my experience. Um, in part, that's because of the overall adversarial nature of the relationship in part you just need to be so much more careful with your technology with your information with your computer because you're just assuming that anything you bring into the country is now compromised he's now compromised oh that's sad yeah but but it's 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 the it's the reality right i mean i i adjust to it um you know i have dedicated china computers that i only use for that and then wipe them um 
But if you're a business person trying to get into China, you know, you need to make sure that you're guarding uh, all of your proprietary information. And, you know, that's just not that pleasant. Um, from a, on, on a more professional note, uh, as under Xi Jinping, there has been a lot more pushback on uh, foreign ideas and the influence of foreign ideas uh, and a lot more worry about the relationship. Lots of my interlocutors and colleagues who I've known for 20 years now, they're a little more reluctant to interact with foreigners and they're a little bit more reluctant to interact with me. Uh, they often have to fill out long reports afterwards after interacting with foreigners and it's, it's, it's risky for them. Understandable. Yeah, no, that's kind of sad. I was kind of hoping to like, hey, no, if you want to visit China, go for it. No, it's 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 still fantastic. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's still fantastic. I mean, so my so my wife came over to visit twice, but hasn't been back in fifteen years, and she keeps saying, "Should I go back? Should I go back?" I'm like, "Let's just go to go somewhere in Southeast Asia where it's much more pleasant and much more fun." (laughs) (laughs) Tell me. What's maybe the dumbest or silliest thing you've done professionally or personally? It could be fun, silly. <laughs> it could be like truly dumb. Um, and how that turn out? I mean, okay, so it's probably b- broader, and the answer is probably going to be a little more serious than than, than silly and it dumb. But whatever. Too. Um, yeah. So as a professor, right? You know me from the classroom, right? Uh, but the teaching part is a small part of our job, right? When when you get hired as a professor and you're on the tenure track, the most important thing you need to do is publish your book, publish so articles, research, right? Research, yeah. right? Yeah. The, the the teaching is a distraction. You yeah, like, you know oh you. Oh my God, yeah. students! What you get yeah you're 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 you're, you're 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 wasting my time and getting in the way. Um, and uh, back to the idea of me being a voracious reader. Right. The the biggest mistake that I have made is professionally is not publishing enough, not writing enough that I get much more joy out of sitting up in my in my in my office with a scotch at midnight going through Chinese language stuff and taking notes on it that I enjoy that much more than like the production and the writing. Uh, So and one of the. Uh, core functions of what I was hired to do of, you know, publish, publish books and publish articles. I haven't been as successful at as I should have been. And and what it, what it, what it is, what it has meant is that I now have moved to a different role where I do more teaching, uh, which is great because I love the teaching, that's what you right? Love. I mean, I, you've, you've seen me in the classroom. We talk about passion. Yeah. That's where it comes from. Um, not even in a classroom, just on Zoom. That's right. That's yeah, right. The fake, the fake classroom. Well, yeah. Even on Zoom, it comes across. I would, I mean, uh, on a more serious note, yeah, I would say that you were one of my, uh, maybe I shouldn't say this, favorite professors, you know, out there on Zoom because uh, you just handled that environment uh, tremendously. It's a, it's a very difficult hur- hurdle for a lot of professors and for a lot of students. I don't think we get the same out of it. No, no, Absolutely no. Absolutely not. Yeah, we yeah. don't get the same out of it. Um, we lose so much in that online environment. But you adapted tremendously well, I well, think. And, and I, I was surprised at how easy it was, relatively easy it was, to get conversation going and yeah. get discussion going. It was a little clunky sometimes. What have you heard that other professors do that is just like doesn't work? Tell them. Like right, right now, what are you going to tell other prof- professors? What's your advice to them in the Zoom environment? I, I mean, professors have such a different range of how they teach their classes, even face to face. Right. So, you know, you've been here long enough that some professors, no matter what the class is, 
they're giving you an, two hours of lecture with PowerPoint with an occasional interrupt to ask a question. Right? Sure. That's not my approach. That's not my view of the way uh, graduate school and master's education should work with a small class. We should be exploring ideas together and, and, and learning from each other. Uh, but there are still people who what they have done as they transition to the Zoom environment is just record their long lectures, post it on there. And then the, the, I mean, the, the good, the good thing about meet at all in Zoom, in that well, case, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, I mean, I mean, well, I mean, that the, the, the good part about that is it gives you flexibility, right? So this whole synchronous versus asynchronous approach, if it's discussion, then I need everybody there, the room, yeah, right? If right. it if it if it's just listening to a lecture, uh, then you then can listen can post to their a, ideas online. Right, right, right. Can, yeah, come back to it in a week. Yeah, fine, exactly. What have you? Exactly. Yeah, the the problem with that is that you need all that time to do that. Like you need longer than a ten week quarter to have a class in that case. If you ask me, but uh, you know we're we're constrained by the system that we're in. Right, we have constraints. Just as well yeah, as I mean it's it, yeah it's 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 yeah I I don't know I don't I don't know if it's a, if it's advice on the Zoom environment or advice on teaching on Zoom and in our current environment it's to really recognize what a difficult time this is for everybody, including the students, right? Yeah. And, we and talk, including the professors. Well, it, right, right, know, right, 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 yeah. right. So it goes both ways. Yeah, but yeah. In, ter in terms of what our assignments are and what our expectations are and all of those sorts of things and how much information we can convey, um, you can't convey as much yeah. all over Zoom as you could uh you know, when, when you were meeting in person. So it's adjusting to that and Certainly. recognizing that. All right, Professor Mike Lozny, we've got a little bit more beer to go. Sweet. You've taught me and really changed my thinking on China today, which is sort of the point of all of this is like, I'm interested. Um, cheers to you. Yeah. We'll drink, we'll drink, and, we'll drink these in, in, in Waikiki sometime. Yeah. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> Thanks for joining us in the Trident Room. This episode was recorded on July 17th, 2020. For more information about today's guests and topics, please visit the show notes. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tridentroompodcast.